Oh my gosh, you are in for such a treat today. At the most recent Psychonomic Society meeting, Ashley and I sat down with Rich Schifrin from Indiana University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences for the, over the last 25 years, um, one of the largest contributors to our knowledge about human memory and learning and automaticity and intention. You know his name very well from, your, from our intro cogged textbooks and, and introductory psychology textbooks. Rich is a great guy with varied interests. He run, runs a meeting um, that revolves around rock climbing and fun outdoor activities. Um, so sit back and relax and enjoy. If you hear a little bit of, of a low sound, it's because we're um, recording this um, in, a, in a hotel next to where the NBA Pelicans are playing. But sit back and have fun. Welcome to Brain Bios. We're extremely lucky today to have uh, Rich Schifrin from uh, Indiana here speaking with us. Um, uh, as you know from our intro, Rich um, virtually walks on cognitive psychological water. Um, but what we wanted to do with Rich was to start off by uh, going way back and having him tell us about how he first got interested in psychology and studying how the, the brain works. So, Rich, tell us. I um, got into psychology when I was at an undergraduate at Yale. And my freshman year, I took a uh, course, an introductory psychology from Ed Ziegler. And this was the worst course I ever took. <laughs> and I decided I would never again either take a psychology course or even touch that field. Wait, wait, what was so bad about it? Yeah, so... Um, Ed was, uh, to put it mildly, a boring lecturer. <laughs> he, um, he was a famous developmental psychologist, you know, but nonetheless, he, his idea of lecturing was come into the uh, uh, classroom every day and write uh, his uh, lectures word by word on the blackboard in chalk um, and kept doing that. We were supposed to copy down his lectures word for word and then later get tested on them. Uh. And that was the uh, teaching method. And I managed to survive this uh, for some number of weeks and uh, eventually couldn't take it anymore. I um, decided to try something out just to relieve the boredom one day. And I drew a square of about one quarter of one of the blackboards and wrote some fake physics equation in them and said, do not erase, just to <laughs> see what would happen. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, the next lecture, Ed came in and took a look at the board and just wrote his lecture in the remaining space. Well, I thought, gee, this is interesting. So the next time I took all but one quarter of one blackboard and wrote fake physics equations <laughs> on all the rest, leaving a very small space and uh, with an even larger do not erase with exclamation points on it. And Ed came in and took a look at that. and. Um, he wrote his entire lecture, kept erasing and writing and erasing oh and gosh. writing in the little space that was left. And I said, well, you know, I could erase, I could have done this, you know, the entire board, but that probably would have led to some kind of problems. So I just decided to let things go and see how things would uh, continue. And uh, basically the, uh, the equations, the fake equations lasted for maybe I'd say two more weeks before probably some janitor erased them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then we went back to uh, continuing the horrible uh, 
introductory psychology course that made me determined never to enter the field. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it turned out that I had a lot of, uh, we had a, a rooming arrangement where I was on one floor with two suites with about seven other students who I was rooming with. And it turns out all seven of them were either pre-med or some other um, kind of thing where they all ended up being psychology honors majors. Mm -hmm. And they were all doing projects. And uh, I guess they didn't want to bother talking to each other, so every one of them was talking to me about their projects. Huh. So I was doing an awful lot of psychology research informally <laughs> <coughs> by talking to um, With my no roommates. Right. Yes, exactly. And I don't know, it sort of got me interested. And eventually I said, gee, if I'm going to be um, talking psychology research all the time, maybe I should actually do some myself. So I walked over to the psychology building, and I just started walking into labs. The first lab that I, wa lab I walked into was a lab that uh, two professors were running. It was Ralph Haber and Naomi Weistein, and they were perception psychologists. And um, strangely enough, they were doing something I thought was quite weird, and maybe I should have followed up. It's what we now call um, visual change blindness. Uh, they were putting things, they were showing basketball scenes to people and putting heads in people's heads in place of the basketball and people wouldn't notice. And I sort of thought, oh my God, am I in an ESP study? Or, <laughs> you know, but I, you know, I didn't know anything about psychology, so I thought, well, maybe this is normal. And I uh, would have perhaps pursued that, except Naomi uh, was sick. She eventually died not too long after. But, so their lab sort of closed because she got ill and had to leave. And then they told me to move on to try something else. And then I moved on to um, Gordon Logan and did some animal research. And Well, not me, but I, he was doing animal research. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, Frank Logan, I'm sorry, not Gordon Logan, mm -hmm. Frank Logan. And uh, I did a human experiment testing his uh, theories about uh, timing and uh, eventually published that. And that um, meant that I was at least, you know, somewhat interested in psychology because I found it sort of interesting. Wait, you got, a, you got your first publication when you were an undergrad? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it must have been, you know, I was, well, it was actually a second because I, I had one in physics that I didn't really do much for it, but I was working in a physics lab as a uh, high schooler and ended up getting a, listed on a publication there for no good reason, <laughs> except that they were being taking pity on me because <laughs> I was working there. Um, so that was like my second publication. Wow. But wow. anyway, yeah, it wasn't. It didn't amount to much, although this one was real because I really did the work. Right. But um, then... Um, Let's see, then I had to decide whether to go into the field or not, and I um, didn't know what to do. I was a math major. Uh, it was sort of a math major by accident because my senior year, the master of the college, Davenport, that I was in, um, uh, called me in and said, you know, we got a problem, Schifrin. And I said, you know, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, you don't have enough credits in anything to major in. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, that was a problem because I didn't know what to do about that. I hadn't planned ahead. I had dabbled in many things. So um, we looked around and decided that if I took all math courses my senior year, I could major in math. So that's what I ended up doing. That was not the most pleasant year. <laughs> <clears throat> but I did, and I ended up majoring in math. And then I had to decide where to go to graduate school because um, I decided I would like to go to graduate school in something. And... Um, 
So the choices I ended up with were um, um, law, math, and psychology. And I don't know why those three. Um, so I applied to various places. Um, usually I could get into pretty much I applied to because I was just happened to be very good at taking tests, uh-huh. you know, those standardized tests. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could pretty much get all the, all the questions right on all the tests. So, you know, that in those days especially, that's all you had to do to get into schools. Right. And then it turned out that I applied only to Eastern schools for um, law and uh, like Harvard and Yale for law and like um, um, math was, you know, in the East. And so I um, was happened to be, they recommended uh, several people because they knew about math for me to apply to Stanford, which was uh, very big at the time in uh, mathematical psychology. Right. And uh, well, they... um, I applied to Stanford, and that was the only West Coast school. And I thought, gee, I've been in the East all my life. I grew up in New Haven, went to Yale. Uh-huh. thought it would be good to get away, and West Coast seemed pretty far away. So um, I ended up going to uh, psychology at Stanford. Um, that's one way of getting into the field. <laughs> Wait, so did you <clears throat> not get into anything else, or you're saying that's the only one you applied to? Oh, no, no. I got into. I could get in pretty much anything. Cause I, you know. So how did you settle on Stanford? Well, it was the West Coast. You know, oh, all the okay. other places Location were in the only. East. Okay, I get it. So that was uh, it. Was getting in was sort of weird too because I was uh, somewhat strangely naive about things when I um, received an invitation from Bill Estes at Stanford to come yeah. and work at in the department at Stanford. I wrote back to him and asked him a series of questions that I thought were relevant, like what parking was like. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's great. Um, and several others of that sort, right. you, know, you know, the housing and the parking right. and this. A lot of logistics and, questions. Uh, yeah. well, you know, not exactly questions that were scientific in nature. Right. And um, I don't know what Bill thought of this, but uh, instead of sending me a rejection letter immediately, he wrote back a very short uh, reply saying, parking is okay. <laughs> <laughs> That was his entire reply. Oh that kept you in the field. But these, I, these, these are letters you're writing, right? Yeah. You're writing these letters. Yeah. And you're waiting for his response. Well, no, I mean, I wrote a letter to him asking about all these things, and yeah. he wrote back uh, one, these three words. <laughs> right. Parking is long. okay. Yeah. Signed Bill Estes. And I was like, well, that's good. You know, parking's okay. I'll go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have the letter? Can we uh, auction it on eBay? Um, That would be great. You know, it would be great if I did, but I, um, it could be that I had the letter because I usually kept all my uh, old correspondence. But Uh um, after my summer conference, I think it was last year, I came back from a trip to Europe, and when I walked into my office, I discovered concrete chips all over the office, all over the floor, all over the shelves. And I thought, my God, is there an earthquake? I didn't Uh know what was going on. Then I noticed like 50 holes in the wall. It turned out they were putting shelves in the office next door. And they drilled through the wall with a power impactor drill. And it knocked concrete all over my office. I thought, gee, this is after all the 50 years, it's a good time to clean my office (laughs) for the first time. So I threw away about 10 tons of paper and everything in the office, basically. And uh, so a lot of old correspondence disappeared right. in the process because it would have taken me months to have actually looked at the materials and tried to decide right. what to keep or not. Right. So I just tossed everything and not 
Yeah. Know, didn't have time to. That's how I clean my office. Yeah, I respect yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, we don't use paper anymore. Right. So this was, you know, right. I had never yes. looked at any of this right. paper. Right. I, the, the, you know, I still had file copies that were left over from 1968 when I moved in. Yeah. So, you know, they were still the same old file cabinets except stuffed with paper. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I have those file cabinets in my office. It's full of the papers from grad school, yes, too. So. exactly. Well, I finally got rid of them. So it may be that any letters I had from the old days are now gone. But And I thought, yeah, that's too bad. When somebody wants to write my biography, <laughs> um, they won't have all this paper material. Yeah, that's right. I sacrifice that. The stand is a shining yeah. example. <laughs> <laughs> so... So uh, I had actually I had, I had since this is the kind a kind of thing that you might find interesting mm-hmm. I should say that I had other interesting psychology experiments um, in my background uh-huh. that perhaps would be worth hearing yeah, yeah. That, let's hear so it. I was known this business of writing on the board was one of many incidents <laughs> <laughs> um, I was Thanks known for being um, somewhat. Um, I'm not sure what the exact word would be, but um, uh, that was representative, and um, <laughs> and people knew this. So my roommates, all of whom were um, um, uh, honors majors, were involved in psychology experiments, and they were annoyed one day because Merrill Carl Smith, who was a social psychologist at uh, um, Yale, was uh-huh. and uh, was doing some interesting research on persuasive communication. And he decided that he would run an experiment where he would uh, send letters to randomly chosen undergraduates, asking them, and different forms of letters to different groups, asking them to come to a particular room for some purpose, seeing which ones would persuade them to come. Hmm. And then the graduate students who were working with Merrill would go to the room and explain to these people that, you know, we're sorry for wasting your time, but, uh, you know, this was just an experiment to see if you would come and so on. Right. And my roommates thought this was a bit unethical, um, or at least they thought that there was something wrong with this uh, mm-hmm. procedure. Mm-hmm. But they were unwilling to do anything. You know, they were involved in these experiments. So right. They were, they were unwilling to do anything themselves. <laughs> right. So, so they naturally turned to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I, um, and they asked me if I could do something about this. And I said, well, you know, why not? And um, so I thought, okay. Okay, well, I don't know what to do, but I'll go to one of these sessions, and uh, the graduate student that shows up, I'll give him trouble in some mm-hmm. fashion. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do, but I'd figure it out as I went. Right. So I show up at the uh, session that uh, you know was supposed to be uh, you know with the other students and the grad students, and I'm sitting there with a bunch of other undergraduates who had showed up, and I'm waiting, and nothing's happening. I'm thinking to myself, what in the world, what can I do? You know, I can't say anything because the graduate student isn't saying anything. I think, well, maybe he's too embarrassed to admit that he's there just to tell them to go home. Right. So I'm waiting and waiting, and a couple of people started to leave, and I say, God, I'm wasting my time. I've got to do something. So I walked next door and picked up a bunch of examination booklets and walked back into the room and explained that I was the experimenter. <laughs> hijacked the experiment. I figured, well, maybe the graduate student is still there, but uh, that would draw him out. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure. Maybe he wasn't there. Maybe he had already left. I didn't know. So I um, 
made up a bunch of questions and made all the undergraduates write answers <laughs> in these examination booklets. Like what kind of questions? Do you remember any of them? Uh, I can't remember the questions <laughs> now. They were pretty stupid questions, right. I'm sure. And um, it kept them busy. And then after about uh, 15 minutes of this, I didn't want them take them too long. I explained, you know, we're really happy that you stayed, even though a few other people um, left, and we want to reward you for um, uh, for for staying and uh, and writing in yeah. the booklet. I said, so if you go tomorrow to Dr. Carl Smith's office, uh. he will pay you five dollars each. <laughs> now, five dollars isn't much, but it was a lot at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good boomerang. So experiment. I told them, you know, to show up at uh, you know at Merrill Carlson's office the next day, and um, and you will get uh, paid for taking part. Well, okay. So I go home, and they go home, <clears throat> and I don't know. But I heard later um, a little bit about what happened. <laughs> How so, did it go? <laughs> well, first hap- first thing that happened, I later found out that evening, the graduate student who's supposed to come calls up Merrill and says he forgot or he oh. overslept or something. He yeah, didn't go. Right, right. And that lost a cell in the design. Uh-huh. So Merrill's really furious and angry, and he says a critical cell in the design is lost. And, you know, he berates the graduate student, but what can you do? And that was it. Then the next morning, the first student shows up from the experiment, asks him for the $5. Uh-huh. Well, you know, this puzzles him. Um he doesn't know quite what's going on. He calls the graduate student up and says, you know, basically accuse him of lying, I guess. Oh, right, yeah. And says, you know, you did show up. I had, one of the students just showed up. And why did you tell him, you know, $5? Right. And he says, I didn't do that. I wasn't there. What are you talking about? Well, <clears throat> this went on all day. Uh-huh. He didn't pay. He kept mm. telling the students that he didn't understand, but, it, you know, he wasn't going to pay them. And he's right. sorry. And Anyway, and then he, uh, but they couldn't figure out what had happened. Right. So he and uh, Bob Abelson had long discussions about uh, what went on. They couldn't figure, uh, they couldn't imagine what had happened. So this became known as the phantom experimenter uh-huh. among the psychology faculty because, you know, they had no idea. There was right. no explanation that made any sense that could explain this. Huh. So um, <clears throat> about maybe a year later, I was in Bob Abelson's office waiting to play Go because I'd started playing Go and he was a Go player. Uh-huh. And I was sitting in his office with Merrill and Bob talking about some experimenter they were, they were working on. And, um, and I was waiting for them to finish so I could, we would start this game. And uh, while they were talking, somehow or other, the con- while I was just sitting, not barely listening, the conversation that they were having, suddenly for some reason they mentioned something about a phantom experimenter. And I'm sort of half listening to this and I'm thinking, phantom experimenter. And it sort of occurs to me that, oh gosh, this was a year earlier, but right. oh gosh, you know, I wonder if that was, and both of them just suddenly turned and looked at me and put their, pointed their finger at me and said, you. <laughs> <laughs> And then I had to admit what what happened. But they were so pleased to finally just learn after right. a year what had yeah. happened. Yeah, they thought there ex- was ghosts I, in the building. Yeah, I had to explain the whole thing, and they were um, they were uh, so pleased they actually offered to take me out for a drink. And, oh, yeah. my gosh, that's so cool. funny. 
Yeah, so that was an interesting psychology experiment, I guess I ran. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, a famous no. prank. Yeah, it was fun. Um, so that was uh, another experiment I had as an undergraduate. So <laughs> that I, one it, didn't turn into a publication, but uh, even better, maybe. I would, well, now it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it took a while, but That's right. it's, That's now, right. it's, now, it's right. now getting out there. Yeah, now, now it can get cited. Um, yeah, so I, I basically, I sort of stopped doing this stuff when I went to graduate school, though. I decided I had to, well, first I played too much golf. So when I started graduate school, I started with Gordon Bauer mm -hmm. and uh, for a year and did some work. And But I was wasting too much time playing Go, and I had to decide to either do that or to do research because I was too obsessed about competing with other people. Right. So I went cold turkey and just stopped. I had to stop doing that and then more or less decided to concentrate on research and also stop doing silly pranks and <laughs> other such practical was jokes. It was a sad time of growing up in grad school. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, I didn't completely give it up um, because years later when I got to Indiana, a few years later, um, we had a Midwestern mathematical psychology meetings, usually attended by 100 plus people. Mm -hmm. um, and it turned out that I was doing the sort of comedy routines on the evening banquet at all of them. <laughs> we were, and we were giving out fake awards with, um, with um, these little uh, um, sort of doll-like creatures that I'd bought at the local shops, uh -huh. these little monkeys and other things that were like um, uh, rewards or awards, like Emmys or whatever. Uh-huh, right. <coughs> and I would give these out with awards, and we gave awards that were sort of treasured still. People still have them. Uh -huh. There are things like the Noam Chomsky Deep Structure Award for that talk with the lowest approximation to English. <laughs> <coughs> and um, other awards like the Xerox Award for the outstanding re-contribution to the literature. <laughs> and you get the idea. And many right, others right. like this. I had to give that up because it took so much time to prepare these, especially since yeah. we had to do them during the conference to make them relevant to right. the talks. It took so much time and effort that it was much harder than writing papers. So I had to eventually stop doing that, and then we uh, moved on. But, um, but so anyways, at Stanford, and then after my first year at Stanford with Gordon Bauer, um, I had been working on things like models of memory, models of short-term memory. And uh, he went on sabbatical to England. And so he traded me to Dick Atkinson, who was also working on short-term memory with his students at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I started working with Dick, and that turned out to be pretty productive. And and that led to, among other things, that uh, chapter that's relatively well known in 1968. <laughs> right, relative. <laughs> right. So it was that that was an invited chapter, I guess that that. Um, it could be. Uh, Gordon Bauer, I think, was the editor. Uh-huh. Was he? Or was it someone else? I can't remember now who was the editor. Yeah, um, so. And um, the uh, invitation would have gone to Dick Atkinson. I was just right. a student. And, uh, you know, so we worked on together. And, um, and we went through a considerable revision, too, because the first version was probably not that good, and Gordon Bauer... Um, told us when he looked at it, whether he was the editor or whether he just read it, said he didn't like it very much, and he suggested we rewrite it, and we did uh, pretty, pretty thoroughly. Um, and so it was helpful to have that criticism, actually. Wow, that's great. And, um, 
And uh, we, so we wrote that up. But we, it, it was a culmination of a whole series of experiments by Dick and his students and me and some various, in various combinations. Right. And then we sort of summarized and put it all together in that chapter. Have, were you, have you been surprised by how many citations that, that chapter has garnered? And it has quite a few. The, we actually had more citations for like the later work on attention with right. um, Schneider, but uh, yeah, that had quite a few. And uh, surprise is the wrong word. You know, when you're a graduate student, you don't know anything. You just do your <laughs> yeah. work. Yeah. You don't just do your work. You don't know what to expect about anything. And, uh, you know, why should a chapter get a lot of citations? I don't know. Um, <laughs> should a uh, should a article get a lot of citations? Right. You know, we just do our work and publish, and you know something happens. Right. And uh, you know, it's not two years later that you learn stuff about you know what makes things well known and who cites what and so on. Right. So I was I can't say I was surprised. It was just nice that it received yeah. uh, you know um, it was accepted you know quite well. So how yeah. did you so how did you how do you think you ended up with something that was so productive? So it seems like you're very creative. Well part right? of it was Dick Atkinson. So I think that the key was that he had I mean I did some work with Gordon that you know did did lead to some publications, but <clears throat> it fit in well with what Dick was already working on on short term mm -hmm. memory. And he had a lot of students. And somehow or other, and I don't quite know how this happened exactly but I ended up being sort of a deputy chief investigator with Dick. <laughs> right. Um, so that I was not exactly um, in charge of the other students, but working with many of the other students. We had a large lab. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to gain productivity partly because mm. I was in on publications with other students and Dick on many of these papers. Right. And um, that was fortunate. Um, it didn't have to happen. If I had to do it all myself, it would have, I would have been much less productive, I'm sure. Right. Right. So um, nobody seemed to complain. The other people I was working with were happy to have me help, help out and work with them. So it, was, it worked out okay, even though some of the others were more senior and were postdocs or faculty. Right. But, you know, I was just a member of the team, and that worked out well. It's interesting because frequently these days when students f switch labs, things don't go well. After yeah, the I think the reason was the work I had been doing and the modeling I had already started was so consonant and so consistent with what Dick was already working right. on that it fit together like just hand in glove. Right, right. So it, it was just a seamless transition. It worked yeah. instantly. Of course, I almost flunked out of graduate school anyway. <laughs> <coughs> Tell us that story. <laughs> That's a must hear. Well, the system they had been using at Stanford, which I expected to um, undergo, was one in which you um, would do your th write your thesis and then get tested on it. Oh. And that was your, you know, right. your... The qualifying examination. Well, no, the qualifying exam was, was different. That was like after the first year where you were tested on all of psychology. And it couldn't mm -hmm. be done now, but then you could do it on all of psychology. Yeah. But then there was a uh, PhD uh, qualification exam, or whatever they called it, um, where a team of people, including your mentor and some other people from Stanford, would test you and quiz you on your dissertation. Okay. And uh, <coughs> my dissertation was related to this chapter, but it was even a follow-up to it. Mm -hmm. So I expected that. But then they decided to change the rules, and they decided they would uh, test you before your dissertation. So I got tested before I wrote it, and um, this was and 
I don't know, I, maybe I was overconfident, so I did not even prepare mm-hmm. for whatever this was going to be. And, you know, these major faculty uh, in the field were then started to quiz me about all sorts of things, and I wasn't prepared to answer well. Right. So a number of the questions I asked, I could answer now, but at the time I found difficult to answer. I fumbled my way through the exam. I felt terrible. In fact, I spent weeks in a deep um, depression uh, because sure. I, I was so disappointed at how I had done, which I think was largely due to you know, just not preparing at all. Right. Um, <clears throat> and um, I thought they were going to fail me, but uh, Dick and, um, and Bill Estes said, well, they managed to convince the outside people that I was actually worthwhile <laughs> 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 and get me through the system. So I didn't actually fail, which was nice. But wow. I still felt bad. I mean, I, you know, it still took a long time before I got over that because I wasn't used to that kind of failure. Right, of yeah. course. So y- this happened after you wrote this seminal chapter. Yeah. yeah. And that before is your dissertation. Crazy. Did they change the nature of the exam? It seems bizarre to test someone over their dissertation. No, it was a pre It was a qualifying for your thesis. In okay. other words, you had to be qualified to write a thesis. I gotcha. You, you, right. you know, they had to the determine. The meeting these days. Yeah, yeah. well. But, it, but harder than that. <laughs> I don't, you know, I can't remember the details anymore. Yeah. Maybe it's not huh. the system they use now. Right. I, I wouldn't know. But at the time, it was something to uh, test you and make sure you were um, good enough to write a dissertation right. of some right. sort like I'm, that. I'm basically indignantly thinking that they should have d- scrapped the system if you couldn't get through. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it was fortunate that I had written this chapter and yeah. also right. published a lot of other things yeah. so that they were able to convince the other members of the committee right. that this idiot that just was tested was actually worthwhile. Right, right. <laughs> uh, this still happens in committee meetings occasionally, yeah. <laughs> right? So yes, I imagine so. <laughs> um, maybe they, none of them probably more of the people these days do prepare for their exams, in which case they don't fail as badly as I did, but uh, nonetheless. Yeah. So, um, you know, another thing we often like to know is, uh, you know, flash forward now, you're uh, training your own students and postdocs and graduate and undergraduates. And uh, what are some of the... Um, what are the Schifrin tips uh, to being successful in the field? <clears throat> well, there's a lot of ethics. I uh, do spend a lot of time in lab meeting every mm-hmm. time. With uh, Maybe they think it's wasting time. But anyways, I spend a lot of time in the lab meetings talking about how, to, how they should operate in the field. And I, I say various things. There's no one, perhaps. One of the things I tell them is they should be really thankful if anyone attacks them in print about anything they publish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they, then they at least get a citation, and it means that someone's paying attention to their work. Yeah. Right. And there's nothing much more valuable than that. I said, what you should pray for is that someone thinks enough of your work to attack it and show it's wrong. First of all, and I said, first of all, you know it's wrong before you begin. Everybody's wrong because none of our models or results are, in some sense, true. They're just approximations, crude approximations to truth that, you know, hopefully will get better over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no sense in defending something you know from the outset is wrong. You, you know, <laughs> um, But in any event, if someone's paying attention to your work, that's the best you can hope for in the field. That, you know, it, it's meaningful then and is advancing science. So you should pray for people to pay attention enough to attack it and show you're wrong. And uh, then you also you might get a reply and then get another publication, and this is all good. 
So right. I said, if you ever get a chance to write a review of anybody who attacks your work, praise it to the heavens. You know? <laughs> Unless you find a you know, serious real mistake, then of course you have to point it out. Even then, you should uh, say revise and you know, right. accept. Yeah. Right. So that's one thing I tell them. Um, and other things is try to be you know, charitable. A lot of people practice science by combat. And I say, this doesn't necessarily work well in the long run. It's a good way to make enemies. And um, it's better to be polite to everyone and uh, give them credit for what they're doing. Even when you don't think that they're doing very good science, it's nice to be polite to them. Um, you know, be honest about you know, criticism, but be constructive. If you want to criticize in reviews or in other things, um, be constructive and um, polite in the way you say things and do things. I know that if somebody attacks your paper, for example, you should uh, write a vicious and um, sarcastic reply just to keep yourself happy, <laughs> and then uh, throw it away and right. then write your right. real reply um, after a little more thought right. a few days later when you've calmed down, and so on, things like that. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, what else do I tell my students? Um, I don't know. We discuss uh, research a lot, of course, and go over um, in every lab meeting the projects. And I never assume that I'll remember a project from one week to the next. Right. So, so we spend each uh, day reviewing and going over um, each project from the beginning, hopefully. Um, it's a little redundant after a while and uses a lot of time that you might think is wasted. But it's useful because sometimes we discover things when we keep repeating, going over what was done, that maybe we missed something important. Right. And then uh, that changes the way the project is attacked and carried out and so on. Hmm. So it can be useful. So you're, you structure your lab meetings much more as an update on what's going on in the lab than as reading journal articles. Oh, right. It's like all that. going, it's all basic. Well, there's some journal articles that turn out to be relevant for the current right. research, but we spend all our time talking about um, current research. And mm -hmm. as the years went by, the kinds of research became more and more and more diverse. Mm -hmm. um, I was, in fact, part of the reason for reviewing every project is there were so many projects in so many completely different areas. Right that I could, I could not remember right. from week to week you know, what one project was about because they all were so different. So it was important to go over them and catch up each time with each project, which were in quite different areas of the field. Right, this is something we actually wanted to talk to you about because you had such a broad influence in psychology, cognitive psychology in particular, starting off with what seemed to be a, a nice focus, but then broadening to yeah, virtually one, everything. Okay, so one of the one of the <laughs> things I do is I don't never have directed my students and told them what they should do research in. Mm. I would talk to them about things that you know I was sort of interested in working on, but said you know what are you interested in? And we would tend to pick out projects that uh, we jointly thought were interesting to work on. So this led to a diversity of research, okay. and partly that worked well because for many years. Um, I got funding from NIH. Uh -huh. In fact, I started getting funding from NIH before I even arrived in Indiana because I took over a grant that Jim Greeno had when he oh. left. And oh, he wow. left the year I came, went to Michigan, but he had a grant still in Indiana, and somehow I ended up taking it over. Okay. So my grant officially started two years before I arrived <laughs> in Indiana, <laughs> which is sort of strange. That's got to be the best track record yeah. of right. funding yeah. I've heard of. But then, um, then it turned out that... Uh, Thereafter, for many years, 
NIH was basically happy with what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I would just write a grant talking about all the many projects I might do or was doing or would possibly do or what have you. And they would just, you know, give me a regular grant every time, every five years, and that let me have the freedom to pursue anything that, you know, I, so I didn't have to direct the students. These days you would have to. I mean, you, you right. get very directed projects on particular projects, and you have to do exactly yes. what you say. Effort allocation yeah. has to be appropriate. And ha- yeah, it has to be exactly what you said you were going to do and so right. on. Whereas uh, NH in the early days wasn't as uh, specific about these things, and I could basically have the freedom to work on anything that seemed you know, interesting. So I would work with the students on things they wanted to work on, and that led to a diversity of uh, projects. Hmm. Okay, wait, we skipped ahead to, uh, I want to go back to how you ended up in Indiana. Um, well, Bill Estes and Dick Atkinson had been in Indiana, and they were two of my, you know, mm-hmm. chief mentors. I never really published with Estes, but uh, he was a person I did talk with a lot, although Estes talked very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so talking was a little different with him than with other people. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> but um, but they both uh, had been in Indiana, and um, Dick had come as a postdoc uh, with uh, Bill, uh-huh. and uh, then then moved on to Stanford, um, and they recommended. I interviewed like in seven schools and had seven offers, but they were suggested Indiana, and at the time I thought that I would just go there on their recommendation, and uh, spend a few years working, and then perhaps move somewhere else. It didn't work out that way because you know Indiana turned out to be a pretty good place to work, and uh, kept improving, and I kept enjoying it, and and. Uh, through a succession of uh, various external offers and so on. Every time I decided it was better to stay than go. Uh-huh. So I've been there since 68. Wow. Can you am. tell us a little bit about what what do you like about Indiana? So what makes it a good job? You know, this might have been true anywhere. I think maybe there's a personality difference um, in part about people who want to move on and see the grass greener everywhere else. Right. But in truth, there is some uh, real advantages to Bloomington. is a very nice locale. It has a fantastic music school that I did enjoy a lot. Um, I like classical music, or I particularly came to like classical music after I went there especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, is a very nice college town. There's a, quite a few uh, good, res- decent restaurants, ethnic restaurants of all sorts. Um, and uh, it turned out I was able to get my fix about um, other kinds of activities in other parts of the world through trips. So mm-hmm. I would uh, start going to conferences in the mountains, for example, and um, I would uh, take trips to places I wanted to visit overseas or in the States. And um, so when I needed a big city fix or an outdoor fix, I could do it on trips, business trips, uh, usually associated with business trips, and, and that helped. And uh, Bloomington turned out to be a very good department um, that uh, treated people well. Mm -hmm. Um, They worked hard to make sure that I was happy and had what I needed. I had good students. That helped a lot. Um, And uh, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe I just lucked into them. I'm not sure exactly how I did, but I did happen to luck into a number of very good students who have since gone on to fame themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, that helped. And uh, the department is run in a very nice way. It's not very um, uh, combative. It's a very supportive uh, department where all the faculty try to help each other, and that's helpful. Um, 
And uh, I felt the department was a good one that kept getting better um, as time went on. So that um, all helped. And yeah. uh, every time that I was considering moving, I decided it was better to stay than go. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so when you're saying you got really good graduate students, what are you looking for in graduate students? So we're hoping that we can help some people think through applying to grad school and have good applications. So what are you looking for? Well, that's a good question. In the, in the, in the early days, it was more accepting people that wanted to work with me. In other words, mm. I guess I had already developed enough of, rep, of a reputation by the time I got to graduate school, which is true of a few hotshot young faculty now, mm -hmm. that if you develop a reputation by the time you get to be a faculty member, even as you're starting, uh, graduate students want to come and work with you. Right. Yeah. And that, I now realize, looking back at it, that that must have been the case with me, that people already knew from publications right. that I was worthwhile and therefore were applying to Indiana, and they looked good to me, so I accepted them. And that was, you know, it just <laughs> happened. It happened uh, just you know, more or less by accident for that reason. Yeah. Um, so I was, it wasn't a matter of looking for students. They were just falling into my right. lap. Um, yeah, it's good, nice. re good recruiting. <laughs> yeah, I was lucky. I yeah, mean, right. but I was lucky caused by the fact that I had already, you know, had enough publications that people realized, you know, I was worthwhile working with. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so then I wasn't really seeking people with any particular qualities. Right. You know, people that would apply, I would look at them, and they said, no, oh, he looks really good, she looks really good, and so on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and that went on for quite a few years, actually, that I wasn't doing, I was doing less um, seeking students than just looking at the applicants that wanted to work with me and just letting them come, right. away, you know, that I had money for. Um, and um, that kept on that way for a long time. Eventually, NIH changed the policy. They stopped funding the kind of research I do and when INSEL came in. Uh -huh. And then, um, and then uh, things tended to change because then I had to start looking to other sources for grants and, right. and so on. And uh, things changed a little bit then. And so if I had to say now what I would look for, given the kinds of re given I've always done modeling, it always is nice to get a student who is uh, capable of uh, dealing with probabilities and of, um, of um, uh, modeling and so on. And, and sometimes the students are willing to get trained. They don't come in with that much uh, uh, background, but you know, it's usually helpful. And the other thing I always look for is someone who's already done research. It turns out that being uh, technically capable doesn't necessarily make you a good scientist. <laughs> yeah. I've discovered that this is uh, uh, true. And uh, you have to have a certain flair and interest and motivation for research, getting your hands dirty with actual data mm -hmm. and dealing with it properly. And uh, it helps to have someone who has done that as a undergraduate. Um, and that's something that... Uh, um, is pretty critical, I think. So a combination of technical skills and research is best, but if you don't have the um, a background in research, it worries me because, it's, you know, some people are fine. To, they come in and learn, and they do well, but some people come in who are, look technically competent but uh, just um, don't have it. So I've had a few failures that uh, didn't work out well, but mostly I've been pretty lucky and gotten good students. Great. You, you talked a little bit about how, how funding has changed. I was wondering if you had any other maybe quick thoughts or big picture ideas about how the field has changed. You know, so right now, as 
so our listeners know we're at Psychonomics interviewing you, um, and this is a meeting that's been going on for over 50 years. And how have you, you seen um, cognitive psychology change? Yeah, so the funding for the kinds of behavioral modeling that I do has sort of dropped quite a bit because they keep giving money to people like Jeff Woodman <laughs> um, who, do neuro, who do neuroscience. And yeah, they uh, think that's, the answers are in there, I guess. It's high, highly annoying. <laughs> the, only, the only way I decided to deal with that was to uh, start doing Woodman-like research. <laughs> I um, actually uh, got him to consult or join a project we're carrying out on EEG stuff right. now. Um, that's about all you can do when they won't fund anything else. <laughs> so other than that, though, I think, so has, has the, uh, have you, you know, I think those of us who imagine what it was like writing a paper what, in 1975, right, where it was on typewriters and you, and revisions involved scissors and stuff like that. Like, do, yeah. do you feel like the field is, is it, does it, does it feel like it's moving faster because I know, for me, it feels like the slow thing is my brain and not how fast I can type. Yeah, so that's something I tell my students all the time, too. Mm -hmm. The advantage of having to deal with typewriters and not being able to make corrections, except laboriously and slowly and in difficulty, mm -hmm. the advantage of that was I would spend immense amount of thinking time before I'd ever write anything down. Right. And going over and rehearsing what I was going to say a lot, mm -hmm. a lot, to the point where I would dream. For example, when writing this chapter in, you know, for 68, uh -huh. I'd be dreaming about the words I was going to use wow. in the particular sentences wow. because I would rehearse them and think about them so long. By the time I wrote them down, it was all memorized right. and word mm -hmm. by word had been worked out many times and revised many times in my head. And that probably led to a lot better writing than um, the current system where you just sort of start typing and hope what you're writing makes some sense. Right. Um, <clears throat> even though you can revise, the trouble is when you write something down and then have to revise what you wrote, it gets hard because yeah. it's easy. It's better to do it by thinking it out before you write it down, I find, right. for me. And I found it to be a much better system, even though it's sort of arduous, to plan everything out in my head before writing it down. And I, I don't really particularly appreciate the advantages of things like Word and, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. the like where you... You, you're almost induced to just start writing without thinking, and that's right. not good. Right. Is there a way that you spend time thinking? So do you have, like, a best thinking time? So Jeff is, like, mowing the lawn, and that's when he comes up with his best experiment ideas, and I, my thinking time's in the shower. What are you, what are you thinking? I used to, well, I used to run a lot before my spine got bad, and I, they told me to stop. And a lot of the thinking I did was actually while running. Of course, okay. the faster you run, the less you're thinking you can do. <laughs> so um, fortunately, I was such a slow runner <laughs> right, right. that I could think most of the time while running because I would do it for, you know, run slowly for exercise long distances. And, um, and I could do some of the thinking while I was running. That was one place. Otherwise, just, you know, while pacing. I, I've always walked while thinking. Right. Um, it may be something about the reticular activating system, I suppose, yeah. or right. something. Yeah. Right. But I don't think well while sitting still or standing yeah. still. Yeah. Um, so that's why this interview is probably uh, <laughs> as bad as it is, because I'm sitting here in a chair and not pacing. That's right. But if I was pacing, I could talk into the microphone, so I don't have a choice. Right. You have a good disclaimer in place. Yes. <laughs> Ashley bought me a book on Darwin, and apparently he had a, a, 
uh, thinking path, yes. as he called it, in the back of his house. I started this really when I was, uh, you know, as a kid um, because my brother and I would talk a lot and we would pace back and forth in opposite directions while talking would drive my parents crazy because you know they would get dizzy watching because right. we'd be pacing back and forth uh, in opposite directions back and forth and back and forth while talking for hours and they couldn't be in the same room with us while we were doing that so that was just wow. the start but I've always paced and thought at the same time huh. or run and thought right but um, that was that's basically what I do still yeah Okay, so I was going to ask you a while ago about your family or your upbringing because I wanted to know how you ended up being such a stinker. So could you, you had one brother? Um, I had a brother and uh, later a sister, uh, about 13 years younger. So my brother's three years, two and a half, three years younger. Okay, and, you, and what did your parents do? Well, my parents were a working class, um, lower class, working class. Uh, my father started off being a uh, uh, working in a garage doing car repairs. Mm. Right. He eventually moved on to uh, having a um, uh, sort of a combination repair place. Plus, he sold some used cars in out of the lot right. that he was working on. I did some work in the summers working for him, changing tires and things. Uh huh. Um, <clears throat> And uh, eventually, he moved past that quite late in life and became a, a, real, a, a, a realtor for business realtor in town. Um, but that was very late in his life. And uh, so most of the time that I grew up, certainly, in all of our, um, of our uh, times uh, that you know, I basically was with him before I moved off to school, he was, uh, you know, a car, me- car mechanic fixer or whatever. Right. My uh, mother was um, uh, uh, sort of a housekeeper. Um, you know, that was that was about it. Wow. So we didn't come from a, an academic background. Of course, we came from a background that um, treasured uh, education. Right. You know, it's sort of a standard Jewish uh, background kind of uh, of approach, and pretty much everything, everybody I knew was sort of in the same ghetto. At, and the school I attended as in high school was a um, inner city school in New Haven, uh-huh. but it had a segregated um, system huh. where the um, there were two classes that were kept apart from everyone else for those going to Ivy League schools. Huh. So there was like two classes, and when someone would be uh, fail so badly that they would only get into Michigan, we you know gave them condolences. <laughs> Uh, no, it was quite incredible. I, at the time, we had no idea what was going on. I, looking uh-huh. back on it, I realized we were, you know, unfairly segregated from the rest of the school. Wow. But it was good for those of us who were in these two right. special classes. Wait, right. So at, when did this happen? This happened in high school? Yeah. Okay. And then we, um, and we uh, all then, all, most of us then moved on to places like Ivy League schools right. and so on. I think there were, some, there were something like nine people of my senior year that all got into Yale. It was wow. a very large number. And uh, they ch- changed the rules shortly after. We wouldn't let that many people mm. from the local schools. But right. um, it, it was a pretty, you know, we had a pretty good group, and we grew up in a, um, so all of us were growing up in a, um, what might be called an educational ghetto, where education mm. was considered a, um, uh, really a, the highest possible goal, and we were all pushed toward that. Right. Parents pushed us, and school pushed us, and our peers pushed us. You know, it was what we did. Right. So had your parents gone to college or no? No. Okay. Hmm. No. Wow. 
So, um, yeah. And um, my, fa my father, before I got into the repair business, was working in a factory in the war and doing uh, mm -hmm. war stuff. Right. Okay, so I wanted to circle back to something else you said. You said something about how you advise your graduate students that it's great if people criticize your work. And I was wondering what you tell your students when they're preparing to give a presentation and they're worried about being criticized. So, like I have some undergrads who are here at Psychonomics and they're gonna present a poster tomorrow night, you know? And of course they're relatively nervous that there are other people here who know more than they do, of course, right. about these topics. There's Rich Schifrin's running yeah, around. Yeah, he might be somewhere, <laughs> I heard. Yeah, I tend to be a bit vocal. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I can't keep quiet. It's, uh, I pace and talk. Right. <laughs> um, no, actually, the, one of the reasons that I uh, ask a lot of questions, which some people notice, <clears throat> is that um, I decided a long time ago that when I'm listening to someone talk, I have a choice of either sort of falling asleep while listening or, uh, or attending. And right, if, I'm right. going to, if I'm going to go to a talk, and you waste the time effectively yeah. you know, right. necessary to do it, I might as well make use of that time by carefully attending to the talk right. and, um, and listening to you know, what the person is saying and interacting with the person. To, and that has the advantage of showing that someone cares enough about what they're saying yeah. to listen and interact and respond and so on. So I ask a lot of questions. I try not to make them antagonistic, but... Um, uh, although sometimes it may come out that way, I try to, you know, encourage the speaker, but also to let them know I'm thinking about what they're saying and what it means and how to interpret it and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So I, um, uh, I do, uh, you know, do that a lot. And maybe right. my students see me doing that. Doesn't mean that they do it because you know students tend to be a little reticent. Right. Um, the. Uh, <coughs> when, but do you tell them yeah, that, so when that I, it's a compliment that if someone yeah I do yeah. T I do explain that this they should interact because it shows that you care enough about the person talking to you know show you're listening carefully and interacting and so on and I also tell them it's important to do that when you're ever going on an interview mm -hmm. and so on and that you should always ask the people that are theoretically interviewing you about their research mm -hmm. and I said that the best way you can get someone to think you're really terrific is to have them spend the whole time talking about what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. very true. And then they leave the and then they leave the interview saying, "Boy, that person was just great." Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, one of the one of the things that I do worst of all, and I really regret this, and I think this is endemic to the field, is I tend, like many people do, to train the students in the uh, bolts in the nuts and bolts of doing research. And what I don't train them on is what probably is 60% uh, of their future success in the field, which is communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, what gets you jobs are your ability to write and speak. Yeah. And uh, we don't train them in that, um, at least not very well, or not overtly. Right. And I don't. And uh, occasionally we'll do practice talks and things, but of all the things that I do and train, um, probably that's what I do least well. Hmm. So I, I think... It turns out that I, my students have done well largely because they happen to be good at communication in most cases, mm -hmm. but not because I trained them to do it. It's right. sort of a sink or swim kind of thing. They come to graduate school, they get trained in the, how to do research. Sometimes these days it takes an, an awful long time, including postdocs, right. 
in, special, in certain fields before you get the technical skills to carry out the research. And the ones who can communicate happen to survive, and right. the ones who don't fail, uh, right. they drop out. Now, is there a way to train people to communicate well? I think there is, but I can't say I do it, and uh, most I've just been lucky to have students who have been okay at it. But, the, um, but um, I do worry about the fact that I, um, as, a, as sort of a failure as a mentor, one of the things that I fail at is what many um, uh, current researchers, I think, fail at, which is training their students to communicate well. I right. think mostly in our field, we let people uh, sink or swim. Mm -hmm. They get trained in the, uh, how to do research, and then if they can communicate, they get jobs. Right. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know, I've talked to a few people who do work at, uh, at training students to communicate in various ways. Mm -hmm. And when I hear how they do it, it sounds fantastic, but it requires lots of effort and time. Yes. And a lot of dedication on the part of the, uh, of the mentor. And I'm not sure many of the scientists are willing to take the time and effort necessary to do that. So I regard that as a big failing, but I've never quite overcome it. Hmm. Um, so I don't train my students um, to communicate um, you know, particularly right. well. Yeah, we, we believe teaching someone scientific writing is probably the hardest thing that a mentor is asked to do, and it's not clear that we do it very well either, <laughs> even when we design classes around teaching people to do it. It, the amount the amount of time it takes and and personal attention with feedback and comments and revisions it, it, it's I've talked it to a, a number time. of my own students and other people who I regard as great communicators mm -hmm. who give great talks and I ask them how they do it um, <clears throat> I don't always do it as well as they do to put right. it mildly but I do sort of okay um, but some of my students, like Mark Stivers gives great talks, and E.J. Wagemarker gives okay. great talks, and a number of others. When I ask them how they do it, mainly what they say is they do what I was doing when I wrote that chapter I was telling you about. They spend a lot of time yeah. rehearsing and thinking about the talk, mm. and they spend a great deal of effort putting it together in a way that will communicate well. So a lot of it is just good, hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, really making sure that you, and the other part, of, another part of it that works is uh, realizing who your audience is. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people are aware that they shouldn't be talking to their lab mates. Right. And they shouldn't be talking to their mentor. Uh -huh. They should be talking to someone who's in a different field of psychology or even not in psychology at all. Right. And that makes for far better talks. And then a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of students, unfortunately, worry that, oh, if they give a talk that's sort of dumbed down enough to talk to a major scientist in another field, that the people working in their field will think something's, you know, they're not right. adequate. Right. And of course, the people in your own field think you're better when you give right. a good talk, not right. worse. Yeah, we think and you're they, brilliant. You yeah. made it sound so simple. <laughs> we get it. So, yeah. yeah, so I do tend to tell them this, that they should be really aiming not to talk to their own colleagues. It's hard for them because, there's, remember, we're training them all the time and they nuts and bolts of the particular field they're working in. So it's hard for them to get out of that mode and now start thinking about talking, telling their mother what they're doing right. or whatever. Right. You know, it's uh, difficult for them to make that transition. And I, would say, I wish I was better at uh, getting them to do this. Um, right. Yeah, I think we all do. I, I did want to pull out um, something else you told us about, um, you know, playing Go 
and uh, I, I know that you have been a very avid climber, and I think you also mentioned that you had meetings that were involved climbing. So I was wondering, and you were talking about your, your passion for classical music, so I was wondering what are the things you do outside of science to maintain your sanity and enjoy life? And let me add to that question, which is how do you decide when it's time to shift? Because that's what a lot of people talk mm -hmm. about, this idea of this work-life balance, right? And when is it okay to leave work and go take care of your mental health by doing these things? Right. That's uh, a better version of my question. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Yeah, this is an interesting question. I'm not sure I have a good answer because it just happens. One, over the years, I, I have a either a um, uh, bad habit, perhaps you could describe it, of uh, saying yes to requests. Um, I feel guilty about not doing something when asked. Mm -hmm. So i constantly being asked for various things. Wait a minute, right, is that like why you're this? here right now? <laughs> <laughs> Are we is that how we got you in that chair? <laughs> I didn't, wasn't going to say that. <laughs> <coughs> We're going to use it as the Wait example. But we but, get it, yeah. But, um, uh, the, and oh, oh, and this, by the way, relates to something I tell my students all the time, which is that they think they're overworked. Mm -hmm. And I explain to them that every year, the amount of work they're going to have to do goes up. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't yeah. realize this, but I said by the time, you know, you think maybe things will get better. Oh, you'll get tenure and you'll, you know, you have right. nothing yeah. to do. Everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, right, right, right. <laughs> um, but, it's, you know, for someone who's a serious scientist, it doesn't work that way. And every single year, you're going to do, do more and more. And then what I found was somewhere around year four, after I became a faculty member, the amount of work became more than it was possible for a human to do. Right. And then it's kept getting worse since. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, I've got a list of urgent things that I've promised to do that I keep on the computer, and mm -hmm. it goes way, way down off the screen <laughs> where I can't see it. Right. And anything below the screen, I ignore, Yeah. even though I promise to do it. And every once in a while, someone will write to me or get in touch and say, by the way, you promised X, and, you know, it's, it's overtime. And, you, and then, then I usually will do whatever it is. But many of the things I never hear about. They uh -huh. disappear. You know, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so they police themselves, uh, huh? Yeah, it's like, it's like maybe people give up or you know whatever, and uh, you know, and they get old enough, and I can delete them from the computer, right. and you know, um, so that's one way to handle the overload. Um, the, um, <clears throat> uh, but you know, when people do get in touch and say, you know, you promised to do X and we need it, I then usually will, in fact, almost always go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's one way. But then the question is, well, uh, what about, you know, I, I've always tried to keep active and do a lot of sports. Uh, sports kept changing over the years. But I used to do things I ran, I ran marathons, I played golf, I played tennis, basketball a lot. Um, lots of sports over the years, and right. I enjoyed that and kept active. Um, then eventually I had to change sports because um, my various um, arthritic uh, joints and everything caused right. me to stop running and jumping and doing all the sports I was used to doing and then I had to switch to things that I could do that like climbing and uh, skiing that backcountry skiing that didn't affect it didn't have impact right right so I um, did that but I've always kept active and I go to the gym every day to try to keep myself in enough shape so I can keep doing this stuff right. wait you go to the gym every day 
Yeah, actually, I go, go twice. So I go not for very long, and I and I don't do look. I go to the gym. I guess you would say I go there under a pretense that I'm having exercise. So I can't <laughs> run. So what I do is I go to the gym and I get on a machine like uh, usually a bike, say, these days. Uh-huh. And I'll get on the bike. I, this not, wasn't always true. I used to work harder. But now I get on the bike and I have earphones on where I listen to music and I have a book that I'm reading. And while I'm doing this, I'm pretending to use the bike. <laughs> and uh, I sit there for half an hour and listening to music and reading, and I uh, say, "Okay, I've done a half an hour." And you know, yeah. so this is not serious exercise, but perhaps it's better than nothing. Right. But that's combined with then going to the climbing gym where I set roots. I'm a root setter at the local climbing gym, mm. and uh, lately they've cut back on my root setting because they have too many paid climbers that. Mm-hmm. Um, actually get paid for doing this so they've cut me back and to maybe once a week so I just actually climb the rest of the week whereas I used to spend all my time setting but um, you know so I do two kinds of gyms I do this fake exercise <laughs> in the uh, in the uh, you know sort of regular gym and then I right. do some serious work at the um, climbing gym wow you make us feel very sedentary wow, yeah. all of a sudden. <laughs> well, I do this partly because, you know, that's the sport I like to do. Right. So, And I t- the amount of time I spend on it is not very high. For example, a lot of the local climbers will spend the weekend going down to the Red River Gorge yeah. about three and a half hours away from Indiana. Mm-hmm. And I almost never go. I've Maybe twice in my whole life I've gone down there because it would take a whole weekend. Mm-hmm. And I can afford to work from, say, 7 in the morning or whatever I get to work until maybe three in the afternoon until I can't do any intellectual work anymore. And then I go and start doing exercise, um, for example. And, uh, but that's when I can't really do any more intellectual work, so it's a nice shift. Right. So are you working on weekends? Do you have these any kind of like batteries oh, no, I, like this? I, I just don't have any difference between weekends and non-weekends. Oh, and really? Vacations and non-vacations. <laughs> and it's basically just uh, if I'm awake, I'm working or thinking. Um, you know, that's how it is. And, um, you know, but I work in all kinds of things. You know, you go to, yeah. go to operas or go to um, um, performances or, um, uh, you know, work things in whenever I can for all sorts of things. But. No, it's, I try to minimize the time it takes to do these things. So mm-hmm. my wife likes to go to Wagner operas, mm-hmm. but they're like five hours longer, <laughs> longer. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't so, do that. You know, that's way too long. Right. So you know, I, if I go at all, I show up for an hour or something. And, right. You know, and then, um, but so I have to. You know, I I treasure my time, and that's uh, I govern my life by trying to, you know, figure out where to put different portions mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we don't want to keep you much longer. I have one more question. Is that uh, am I telling you in uh, some uh, implicit fashion that I don't want to spend here talking to you any longer? <laughs> no, no, no. We 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 feel guilty about. Yeah, uh, uh, I, your wife stealing. is waiting on you. No, I, actually, what time is it? Because seven thirty-two. Oh, we got plenty of time. So, okay. <laughs> but we can stop. But, whatever. But Do you I, have another question? No, there actually usually does have a a, a nice question at the end. But I wanted to yeah. know what you're reading. I read science fiction all the time. Okay. I mean, I read occasionally other things, but I spend most of my time uh, reading various kinds of science fiction, which is actually um, the writing tends not to be very good most of the time, mm-hmm. but the thinking often is really uh, huh. top five because many of the um, people who write it are actually um, deep thinkers about the issues in society 
and in technology. Uh -huh. And although no one would ever claim most of them are, um, let's say, uh, writing good literature, they are writing good thinking. And I enjoy that. And, wow. um, and it's escapist literature, I have to admit, but it's right. also thoughtful. And so I enjoy that. So most of the time, and I'll read in spare moments, when I'm uh, on the workout machine, before I go to bed for a few minutes, you know, things like that. I read a lot of science fiction, but uh, that's mostly what I read. Um, and then occasional books that I uh, run into that, uh, for other reasons that I read that are really good. Uh, most recently at one of the meetings I ran into an award given to a woman who wrote a book on Van Humboldt. Mm. And um, it turned out he was an incredible scientist who's yeah. not known much anymore, who was a leader the, of the, the environmental electric, movement. The electric fish discoverer, right? He did many, many things and um, was probably the world's leading scientist for many years yeah. and was very famous. And then nowadays, maybe because of the German connection and so on, he's sort of, people don't talk, talk or think about him much, but I was rather impressed when I read his book about him and it was pretty incredible. But anyways, things like that. So occasionally I'll run into a, uh, you know, a book for one reason or another that captures my attention that I'll read uh, uh, other than science fiction. Okay, are these books you hold in your hand? Are oh, you no, reading no. on a Kindle? Yeah, I used to have them in my hand, but then I had to switch to a Kindle because just I read so much that it was a lot cheaper to yeah, <laughs> right. buy the books electronically than to get to, even though I prefer right. you know, holding a book in my hand. Uh, yeah. and, now if, and it's interesting because I hate to read technical work on the, on the web as opposed yeah. to a paper print articles or uh, books because there's something about being able to know where things are in a book and leaf back and forth to where things are and read the figures when you need them. Mm -hmm. Other things that are so difficult when I'm trying to do it electronically that I really hate uh, doing technical work on, on the computer. But Kindle is fine because you just read continuously forwards. Right. Yeah, that's true. We have an argument in our house about the importance of holding books, so this is why I asked you this <laughs> Which question. Which one of you is the uh, book holder? I'm the book holder. Ah. <laughs> well, I, I do appreciate that. I like to hold books, except for, as I say, mainly for expense reasons. I, I know. I um, switch to reading this stuff on a Kindle. But um, for any technical material, I much prefer to, if I can, to uh, do the reading on paper. Right. At the a accuracy of uh, proofreading and right. the comprehension of the text is so much better on paper uh, as of the last studies I know about oh, yeah. anyway. So I find that to be true for me. Right. Okay, I lied. I have one more question, and then I'm going to stop asking questions. Okay. So since I'm sitting here with my spouse, and your spouse is waiting for you to return, how long have you been together? Uh, this was my second marriage. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, Started around 1980, and uh, so how long has it been? 80. I was born in 82, and I'm 36. <laughs> 82. Yeah. Well, then it makes so 38. 38. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so do you have? Uh, so how? We have how four children. We have four children: two from the first marriage, uh -huh. two from the second. Uh -huh. uh, the two girls are the recent ones, and uh, the, there's a. The oldest was a. Um, a a woman. She's a lawyer in Madison, Wisconsin, doing social service law, wow. disability rights oh, in Madison, Wisconsin, and married to someone who's doing equally good uh, social service. He uh, heads a team of 
30 or 50 people doing uh, teaching of literacy to uh, people who need literacy training as adults in wow. Madison, Wisconsin. Wow. They have a big need there. And it's a, it's a nonprofit uh, program that he runs. So the two of them together are doing a lot of social service work. Yeah, must be and my son is a, uh, currently out in Denver with my grandson. Um, and uh, <coughs> he, he's married to a... Um, to a, um, uh, a French woman originally who was uh, working as a human uh, resources director for a firm that eventually she uh, quit so she could uh, do some family work and is now sort of remotely doing some work. They moved to Denver from D.C. where they had been. He is a um, uh, works for the um, um, uh, GAO, the governmental yeah, accountability, accountability office. office doing environmental regulatory work hmm. and uh, I don't know they didn't find fam raising a family in DC would be uh, feasible for right. a whole variety of reasons uh, even though they were living in Arlington uh -huh. but they <coughs> but they uh, decided to move to a opening that he had in Denver which mm -hmm. they really like a lot better and they have a much better life there oh, and, and they're uh, doing well there and um, so they're the two oldest and then the two youngest. Uh, my daughter is going to be here in a few hours. Oh, wow. We're going out to dinner with her. Uh, she's out in L.A. at the moment, although maybe she's transitioning back to Vegas where she was previously. Okay. And um, she, she does many things that I make many stories, but I don't have time to tell you about. <laughs> and, um, but Next podcast. Much, wow, yeah. even, much more exciting than me. But, um, <laughs> And the youngest is a uh, nurse, a, a nurse practitioner now, mm -hmm. who uh, originally got a job, which annoyed me a lot. Her first job was a year back in um, University of Utah. So she got her first job as a nurse practitioner at the medical school at the University of Utah. Yeah. And then she arrived there in January, and they showed her her office, and she sent me a picture. Now, her office was three times the size of mine. No. <laughs> With all new furniture and with a big window looking out at the Wasatch Mountains. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still living in the same office I got when I came to IU, which is approximately like a prison cell, but not as good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, all concrete blocks and right. tiny right. and whatnot. Yeah. In, institutional and, office. And I said, now, you know, something's not right here. <laughs> Anyway, she she's since moved to the VA in Las Vegas, where she is now. But um, uh, so you know, so I have a uh, interesting family. Yeah. This has been so much fun to learn about you. I'm so grateful that you came to talk to us. Are you regretting it right now? Well, I haven't had a chance to ask you about your situation. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, we're out of time. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rich. This is really amazing. All right. So this so. is way too long, probably. Would you no, cut it's it down? not. We oh, love it. This no, is no. perfect. Th this has been beautiful. Thank you so much.